I'm going to ask you if you would just quickly this evening to meet me. Uh, you can remain seated. Meet me in the book of Proverbs chapter 23. Uh, we're going to do things just a little bit different tonight. Gentlemen, if you will help me, I would appreciate it. You all know how much I love to have church, and I'm a preacher. That's what I love to do. I love to preach. And I don't do good with change, but uh, we're blessed to have some powerful voices that teach in this church and preach in this church on a regular basis. Amen. And uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter was kind of picking on me tonight, Lauren. I was at home and I, I, we were getting ready to eat supper and I, I told him what I was doing tonight. I said, we're, we're planning on having this doctrinal panel tonight. And I don't know if she thought I was joking or she said, well, you going to move the pulpit and get a stool? And No, there ain't no coffee up in here on me tonight. I'm just Proverbs 23 and 23. We ought to be able to quote this together. Buy the truth and sell it not. Can we say that, that first line together? Can we do that? Buy the truth and sell it not. Now, that part we hear often, but I like the rest of it. He said also wisdom and instruction and understanding. I believe with all of my heart. I can say this unequivocally tonight. I believe that we have the truth. I believe we have the truth. When I say that, I'm not saying we have part of a, of a truth. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, I don't believe we have one of many truths that there are several pathways that you can take. and Whichever, whichever one... God looks like to you. That was kind of the message of the age for a while. God is the same God, but some call him Allah, and some Hare Krishna, and some Buddha, some it's an inner working that's something spiritual happening in you. Listen, that's the importance of knowing there's one God. He has a name. There is no other God above him. There is no other God beside him. He didn't create with a council of gods. He didn't create with a council of wisdom. He created and stretched it all out by himself. And he gave us a plan. If you believe that, say amen. amen. He gave us a plan. Now, we're going to move into this panel in just a minute. Guys, if you want to come uh, on the outside, Bishop, you and I will sit in the middle tonight. But uh, I want to talk to you a little bit. She's got your microphone down there, Dad. She was, she was getting after it over there. If, we, uh, if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves as a movement in a place where uh, I have feared my whole life. When I read Joshua and he is talking about a generation that arose in the wilderness that knew not the Lord. 
nor the wonderful works which he had performed. Man, it starts messing with my mind because, technically speaking, you can look at it uh, in, a, in different ways, but technically speaking, a biblical generation would have spanned that 40-year period, right? So there's one generation of time, 40 years, from the Exodus until they walk into the promised land. It's only one full generation. How is it that in one full generation of time and 40-year period of time that the generation coming behind the old-timers, if I could say that tonight and not be too obtrusive, how is it that you've only got one generation of time in the wilderness and there's a generation that, that comes that doesn't even know God? Not, not only the power of not knowing Him, but understanding the value of what's transpiring there every day. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this is a generation that doesn't know Him, but every morning of their life, six days out of the week, when they open up the tent door, there's manna. They've been eating manna for 40 years, and nobody thought to tell them who gave it to them. And when they got weary with manna, they open up their tent door and there's quail laying everywhere. I'm not talking about a quail hunt. Now, I'd have been in on that. The Lord would have gave them a 12 gauge and said, go kill all the quail you can kill. No, I'm talking they walked outside and the wind of the spirit had blown quail into their camp and they just picked it up and started cooking it. How is it that your children could see every day of their lives when they opened up that tent door, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and not one soul put their hand on their kid's head and say, do you know what that is? Do you know where this came from? Do you, know, do you understand what that haze is over that tabernacle right there? Do you, uh, do you understand that? How does it happen? And I'm going to tell you how it happens. Somebody wasn't talking. Somebody wasn't talking. There are things about Pentecost that we take for granted that they're always going to be there. And I want to tell you, if we don't talk about it, they're going to leave. Churches have become dead in their worship. We've become imitators of emergent and ecumenical movements. Our worship sets, they're not, it's not praise and worship anymore, it's worship sets. And our, our worship sets are sung on stages instead of platforms. I know it's just semantics to some people. But I'm telling you where we're at tonight. There's some things that if we don't talk about it, our kids aren't going to know about it. I want my kids to know what being drunk in the Spirit's all about. I want my kids to know what being slain in the Spirit's all about. I want my kids to know about devils being cast out. Come on, somebody. I want, I want my children to know about aisle running, dancing, shouting. I, I want my children having to pick bobby pins up off the floor on Sunday night after church or Monday morning. We're apostolic. And if we don't talk about what we are, there's going to be a generation 
There's going to be surprise and everything we are is going to be everything we've been. So while we're, while we're trying our best to be relevant to the world, and I think it's important, I think it's very important that we be relevant to people, but let me submit to you respectfully tonight, there is nothing more relevant to this world than the gospel. Nothing. I said it Sunday night and I'll say it again. I'd trade every light that we have, every sound system, keyboard, every modern thing that we have. I would trade it in a heartbeat if it meant an old-fashioned outpouring of the Holy Ghost. I don't think we have to get rid of it to have it. But whatever we do, we've got to have a move of God. We've got to have a move of God. And I've always said that if we can have an authentic move of God, authentic revival... Evangelism is a natural part of that process, just as children is a natural part of intimacy. Church growth is a natural part of revival. When people walk into this building and they get the same thing they could get at every other church they go to. But if they walk in here and it feels different and the power's different and the atmosphere's different and the preaching's different, I'm sorry. But I, I'm not looking to be part of a generation with cut-up jeans and button-up Hawaiian shirts just so I, I can be relevant to this world. How about this? How about we just preach the gospel and have apostolic demonstration that confirms the word with signs and let's let God move. I don't believe that we got to convince somebody we're relevant when they walk in here addicted and they leave free. When they walk in here sick with cancer, but they leave healed. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. And so tonight, we're going to begin uh, with a couple of different things. I'm going to kind of lead the conversation. Uh, We'll see how how this goes. Um, But I I told uh, Brother Crow when I came in tonight, I said it's going to be a little different. But uh, I'm fed up. With false doctrine. (laughs) I'm not talking about in denominal movements. I'm talking about things that people are buying. That are not truth. And so. Here's the. Here's the. uh, The frustrating part to me. Brother Stephen and I were talking about this in the office. Some of the doctrines that. Our movement have capitulated to and and walked after they're saying they're doing it because uh, of of other reasons but they have children that have walked away from truth or they have whatever so there is a um, how shall I say it the kindest way I can say it I guess is there's an ulterior motive to the compromise you've heard me preach this many many times in this pulpit Every false doctrine has a motive. (laughs) Every false doctrine has a motive. Now, I need y'all to put your seatbelts on for three minutes because I'm going to talk to you like big people. You got your big boy britches on. We don't believe in exclusivity for the sake of saying we got a monopoly Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. 
We're not, I, I don't, this is not a I'm right, you're wrong thing. I'm going to tell you what it is. The word is right. That's what's right. The word is right. Therefore, if we preach the word, then it's right. If we are, if we are developing doctrines that we have to walk outside of the scripture to have, is it right or is it wrong? So, um, one of the primary things that we're going to deal with tonight, not exclusively, but we're going to deal with a doctrine that's been floating around for some time um, that's called light doctrine. Uh, but Galatians 4 and 16, asked, Paul asked this question. He said, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Somebody say truth. I'm going to tell you something about truth. Truth will reveal your friends and it will reveal enemies. <laughs> I've, been, I've been sitting in people's homes. I'm thinking of one, uh, especially right now, that my wife and I were teaching a home Bible study to this family. And the moment that she saw the revelation, this lady saw the revelation... That there was only one way to be saved. She saw the revelation. Sitting at the table. And she started weeping. And it, it got so. Conviction got so strong on her. That she got up. Left the table. While I was teaching. She went down the hallway. And she was wrecked. So my wife looked at me. I kind of nodded. So she went down the hallway. And she checked on her. She walked in. And she was just weeping. She said, are you okay? And she said, my children aren't saved. My parents are not saved. So here's, here's what I want to say to you. This is the big people talk. Okay, everybody's got your steak knife because this isn't milk. This is, this is meat right here. We got to come to grips with the fact that there are always going to be people who are lost, and there are going to be people who are saved. And I'm not going to be lost because somebody else doesn't receive salvation. Woo! Come on. Well, what if they've already passed away? Then you've got to trust God's sovereignty. Well, Pastor, they didn't get a chance to get baptized in Jesus' name. And if you've got to be baptized and get the Holy Ghost, then they didn't. Well, listen. I'm not, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but you don't know how many chances somebody has turned down in their life. You don't know how many times someone has came to them and rightfully divided the word of truth and they didn't receive truth. We're not saying this so that we can say we are exclusively right. We're saying that the word is exclusively right. That's it. We got to be open-minded enough to love people and close-minded enough to believe there is no other way. There is no other scripture. There is no other doctrine. Amen. And so we're going to begin tonight just a, a short discussion. We're going to try to keep everybody captivated. I hope tonight that this is not too different, but I feel good about it. I feel it's spirit-led to do this. And we're going to talk... For just a moment, I'm going to have Bishop address you first. 
Uh, he's been in this many, many years. And I just want him to speak for just a few moments on the fact that every false doctrine has a motive. We've seen him come and we've seen him go. But in his years of church leadership and church government, uh, in district work and organizational work, I want him to speak to the idea of how false doctrines rise, how they fall, um, how they come and how they go. Bishop, would you just start us with that tonight? Pastor, I think that uh, the thing that's one of the things that's most important to realize about the Word of God and the Kingdom of God is that God was intentional in everything that He did from uh, the Exodus to the tabernacle, the ark, everything was intentional. He did it with purpose. And he, he did not just cast things to the wind and say, however you want to do this, do this, and ultimately it'll all end up warm and fuzzy and we'll all go to heaven together and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. Never intended it to be that way. And I, I could take a lot of time and talk about a lot of, of direction, but I, but I want you to understand that the thing that's most important to realize that something is authentic is that if it survives the battle and it survives the test of time and it's still intact and it still works centuries from when it began, it still works and still does the job. The thing that the, thing that the devil is, is the best at is distraction. And if somehow he can get you, I, I know I could, I could list a room full of men who thought somehow they had to go looking for something new or something fresh to add to something that the elders before them had brought to the table that worked, that was successful, that built the kingdom of God. And they thought somehow they had to find something new. And it was only a distraction and ultimately to them a destruction. And I, I was thinking a while ago about I didn't really know how this was all going to go. And we'll get into it a little further. But uh, the, the, the word of God is replete with, with parables. And uh, one of the things that Jesus gave, gave us an example of is he told his uh, disciples, he said, you've been fishing on that side of the boat all night long and it didn't work. He said, cast your net on that side. They'd already put their nets away and given up and said, it's not going to work. And he said, one more time, just cast your net. Now, the thing that's most important to understand about that is when they threw the net, the fish that were in the net didn't say, well, you know what, I think I'll go this way to be saved and I'll go that way to be saved. No, they all came in the same way in the same net. And I want you to know that the same net will still work in the 21st century. Amen. I want to thank uh, Brother Stephen Gill for working so hard today. Uh, I reached out to him this morning and he compiled some things for tonight that we're going to discuss. But he had put a quote from Bishop Golder. I don't know how many of you remember 
through the years. Bishop Golder used to preach on the radio in Indianapolis every week, apostolic preacher. And he made this, this uh, quote I thought was awesome. He said, there's only heaven and hell, and you're not smart enough to miss them both. Church family, listen, listen to what I'm telling you. The whole reason for the gospel is because somebody's going to be saved and somebody's going to be lost. That, this is what that means. There's people going to heaven and there's people going to hell. And so now we've, we've got to make it plain and we've got to get it, not for, for being mean or exclusivity again, but because the word is right. Not everybody that says, I love Jesus, or that they, they can find a preacher that will put them in heaven at their funeral, is going to heaven. It don't matter who dies anymore. All they get from everybody on Facebook is RIP. I mean, Lord have mercy. It don't matter what they've done or what they've done, who they've done it with. Even church people start... Re- Enjoy your rest in heaven. I know they're looking down on us now. We got to be careful with that stuff. There is salvific language that we're speaking of. And I'm going to tell you how strong I believe this and why I preach with the passion that I do and I live the way that I do. Is you're either going to make it or you're going to be lost. And it won't be accidental either way. If you're saved, it's going to be because you are intentional about your salvation. And if you're lost, it's going to be because you intentionally avoided your salvation. Amen? So I'm going to have uh, Brother Stephen Gill kind of open up for just a little bit. I want to talk to you about light doctrine. I'm going to have him deal with um, some of the basic ideas of it. Now let me give you just brief groundwork and then I'm going to let him speak kind of from a scholarly side of this. But light doctrine is assuming that there are people in this world, perhaps, that have never heard the gospel. And if they have never heard the gospel, then what is God going to do to those precious people that have never heard? And is he not merciful enough that as long as they walk in the truth or the light that they know, if they walk in the light that they know, that even if they're not fully saved, God will not let them be fully lost. And it's based from the idea of a missionary in Africa that was of a certain faith or whatever and maybe did not preach Acts 2.38 message, but he gave his life to the kingdom of the Lord for 35 years, and he died on the mission field. Is God going to send that man to hell? That's, that's where we go wrong. God don't send people to hell. Amen? And so I want Brother Stephen uh, to just deal a little bit with some basic principles, um, get us kicked off, get us started. Thank you for all the work you put into this today. So, like Pastor said, um, we call it light doctrine. It's also uh, referred to as third destination doctrine. Because um, if they're not going to heaven, they're not going to hell. You've got to have a place to put them, right? So, yeah. third destination. Um, light doctrine, um, more modernly, you can find traces of it 
in all kinds of belief systems, but most recently it's actually um, rooted in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormons. So for apostolic people who have started espousing this doctrine, that's awkward because we're not Mormon. <laughs> um, so light doctrine is the belief that you could say it easily like this. If you were the best Catholic that you knew how to be, we don't believe, of course, that Catholic doctrine, I don't, um, this is, a pastor's done all the prereqs I can think to say, we're not against Catholic people, we're not against Baptist people, we're not against Methodist people, but the doctrines have to be dealt with, right? Because not everybody can be right, you know, somebody, at the end of the day, the, the Bible is right. And so um, light doctrine would say something like, um, if you were the best Catholic that you knew how to be and you were never anything but a Catholic and you never heard anything else, then you won't be in heaven and you won't be in hell, but you will be in the new earth. And they get this, uh, principally this doctrine is defended um, from two uh, passages in the New Testament that I'll read to you. But the most important thing you have to take away immediately from this is how much this interrupts uh, one God, Jesus' name, what we, we call soteriology. That's the snotty way of saying the study of the doctrine of salvation. Um, this really interrupts what we teach and what we believe about what does it mean to be saved. So when Jesus said, unless a man be born again of water and of spirit, he's not going to see the kingdom. He's not going to enter the kingdom. This is automatically right off the bat conflicting, okay? Because you're, quite, you're bringing into question the need for spirit baptism. And you might say, if you were like a you know, Baptist, Methodist, whatever it might be, you would say something like, well, no, I believe that they were filled with the Spirit. And uh, the question is, what do you mean by filled with the Spirit? And this is why as we as oneness apostolics, we can't let down on what it means to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's not something that happens at confession and belief. It's not something that you... Uh, you just claim to have, it's, a, it's the free gift that you just ask for and God gives it to you. There's a sign that accompanies being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if you haven't spoken in other tongues, then you haven't yet been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is just Bible doctrine. And so um, with that said, I'm going to read um, first the, the defenses made for light doctrine, third destination doctrine, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm going to read the defenses of the doctrine, what they claim, and then... Uh, I'll give some short thoughts and pass it back to Pastor. This is Second Peter chapter number 3 and verse 10. I'm going to read four verses if they want to throw it up there. Second uh, Peter 3 and 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you be in all holy conversation and godliness? Verse 12, looking for that, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of our God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So from this scripture... Those that would be strong proponents of this doctrine, they would say there is a difference between being righteous and being holy. They would say that uh, there are people who are uh, not walking in the fullness of truth, that are not uh, baptized in Jesus' name. They're not full of the Holy Ghost, but they're not bad people either. 
and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and, you know, they maybe go to church, uh, maybe they're Christmas and Easter saints, and they are the righteous, but they're not the holy. This is the argument that they would make, and they would say, so they, they won't be in New Jerusalem with the bride, but they will be in the new earth. Now, there's some problems with this right off the bat from Second Peter, one of which is Peter does not say that we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth the righteous. Right. It says wherein dwelleth righteousness. That matters because Peter is not talking about people. He's talking about a state of being. It's a state of existence that when we get over there, there's not going to be anything unrighteous about it. And uh, I'm going to read uh, from Revelation to kind of tie in uh, the beliefs about the new earth and where this comes from. Um, because this is, in my experience with uh, people who do espouse this doctrine, this has generally been their go-to. Uh, Revelation chapter number 22 and verse 10. The Bible says, and he saith unto me, this is John of course, he says, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So, the angel is speaking to John. He says, uh, don't seal uh, the sayings of the prophecy of this book. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his works shall be. So, from the perspective of somebody who believed in light doctrine, they would say, look, there it is. There is the righteous and there is the holy. Um, there is this distinction that they would, they would create. Again, there's some problems here. Um, if you read Revelation with the idea in mind that the new heavens is a dwelling for the bride of Christ, if you want to say it that way, and the new earth is a dwelling for people who are righteous but not holy. It forces you immediately to assume a couple of things. Number one, and we'll get to Revelation uh, further in the end when John describes New Jerusalem coming down. But you have to assume first and foremost that unredeemed, not blood-bought, still under the curse of sin people will be in the new earth. And the problem with this is, from the perspective of the Gospels, is what need would there be of the cross if sin hasn't been conquered? Right. You know, we read Revelation that he took the keys to death and hell and the grave, and sin will be conquered once and for all. Well, this idea that there's a division between righteous and holy and just, and then there's the filthy and the wicked... This would force you to say that somebody who has not been buried in the name of Jesus, somebody who has not been transformed by the renewing of their mind, they haven't been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, they are still by definition under the curse of sin, the sin of Adam. I'm not talking about their individual behavior. Right. I'm saying under the curse of the sin of Adam, you're saying that that curse will continue on into the new earth. That's a problem for a lot of reasons. Um, this idea that um, righteousness and and holy that these are uh, these are meant to be understood as distinct uh, ways of of living. Uh, this is not uh, these are not individual 
uh, and I'll let uh, Pastor and Bishop and, and Jordan uh, dissect some of this, but John is using what's called in this passage, it's called synonymous parallelism. You find it in the prophets, you find it in the book of Psalms a ton, and you find it in the book of Revelation. Um, we know for sure that righteous and holy are not meant to be understood as two categories of people. Once again, we're talking about states of existence. Why? Well, just go back to the rest of the New Testament. If the righteous scarcely be saved, wherewith shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Be holy for I am holy is a commandment from Jesus. You know, the, the idea that there is a righteousness that exists apart from putting on Christ. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. So if we don't have on his righteousness, if we haven't yet put on Christ then I don't care if you call it holiness or righteousness or godliness. Call it whatever you want. You don't have it. And so uh, these are the principal defenses that are made for light doctrine, um, that there is a destination. Uh, there is a place for these people to go that is not heaven. It's not earth. There's obviously a ton of scripture in the New Testament that opposes that, and I'll let them dig into that. But that is fundamentally, that's what we're dealing with. Um, it is a doctrine that's motivated by the idea that um, well, we don't want to, let's just be honest, we don't want to put our lost loved ones in hell, right? That's the motive. And it is tough, but the scripture says that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go therein, many go that way. But the Bible also tells us that narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to Righteousness, and few there be that find it. It's a straight gate. It's a narrow way to heaven. You've got to walk the narrow way. Jesus said, "If any man cometh in in any other way, he's a he's a thief and a robber." So, um, I'll pass this back to them now that we've kind of covered the fundamentals. And pastor, so here's the fundamental issue that we're seeing. Then, is that they've got divisions of people. I think the motive becomes pretty clear pretty quick. They don't want to put lost loved ones in hell. So that's, that's the first problem. We don't put anybody in hell. We put ourselves into heaven. I've, above all else, I must be saved. I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is not about who we put in hell. This is about me get, being sure I make it to heaven. So we've got... The righteous, and we've got the holy, and then we've got the wicked. Okay, so the wicked are who hell was created for. And then you've got the bride and the friend of the bride, if I could say it like that. So you've got the people seated at the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which are the ones that have been redeemed. And then there's like another table that's set. And this is for the friend of the bride. So you've either got to say that he's got... Two brides, or he's a cheater, and he has a mistress. Because the word says he has one bride. And, and so I'm going to ask you this question, and I, obviously we can't answer it out loud, all of us. But this, here's the big problem you run into. If you've got the holy and the righteous and the wicked, then who's the judge of that? Who gets the opportunity to judge what's wicked and at what point does it cross over into righteousness? 
So because then somebody had ever murdered someone or whatever, they were wicked, then there's never a chance for them to be righteous or whatever. So this is the thing I love. Whether you're born into an apostolic family or you were a murderer in a prison that somebody came and preached to you in prison. In prison, you have to repent of your sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, and filled with the Holy Ghost. If you were born in an apostolic family and your parents are generational apostolics, you have to repent of your sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. The, beauty, the beautiful thing about, about the gospel is it brings us all to a level playing ground, playing field, that there's only one way to be saved, whether you're good or righteous or whatever you think you are, you still got to be saved. So I'm going to lead Brother Jordan into uh, this. This is a, a strong conviction that I've stood on. I had to deal with this organizationally through the years. Um, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, so I'll say it like this. I had some people calling me saying, have you had to deal with this? What are you doing? What are you saying? How's it working? And I want to talk to you about one of the strongest things that I've stood on for probably the last five years in phone calls and conversations that I've got about this. And why is it even an issue? Because people that you and I know that are apostolic preachers and people, they have acquiesced to this wind of false doctrine through the years. That's why we're even talking about, I'm not talking about something that they taught on TBN. I'm talking about people that we've heard preach at conferences and whatever, and they're like, no, we're not going to talk about it publicly, but privately we believe this. Listen to Pastor Knight when I tell you, whatever you believe privately is what you believe. <laughs> Who, at whatever kind of apostolic you are privately, that's what you are. And so this is one of the things that I've stood on so strong is that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, God manifests in the flesh, gave us a great commission. And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Did he say it? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So, one of the things that I've dealt with is that some of these guys, and I'm sorry, I can't sit back that far. Some of these guys that I've, I know have said they believe this doctrine are also big givers to missions. And I don't know why they would give the missions if the only thing missionaries are doing is messing people's lives up. If Billy Jean in the jungle is going to be saved because he walked in all the works that he knows, then why in the name of God are we sending a missionary over there to wreck his life? Leave him alone. You understand what I'm saying? If, they're, if they just can be good people and walk in what they know, then please do not send a missionary over there and tell them, you must be born again of water and spirit because Jesus said so. Because now they have to be born again. So, Brother Jordan, I want you to talk about why in the world would we support missions if good people are saved? To answer that, that question fully, I, I think you have to understand why 
this doctrine is so compelling, like where the place that it comes from. And, and I think a lot of false doctrines are like this, and there's a lot of degeneracies in our, in our modern-day age that come from the same place. It comes from a place of, of supposed compassion. Right? It comes from a place of, well, I don't want them to be in hell, so by my compassion, it compels me to say that there must be a way for them to make it to heaven. There, there are a lot of falsities that hide and masquerade behind compassion. You see, even in, in our modern day, um, for a modern example, they, they make the claim that you should support abortion by the same claim. You have compassion on the mother. Right. It's, it's her choice with her body. Well, I would ask, what about the compassion for the unborn child in her womb? It's the, the same idea also comes, um, they try and pitch this idea of, supporting LGBTQIRT, they add letters every week, the, you have compassion on them, so therefore you support them. And maybe we should have compassion on them because that subset of people has the highest rate of depression, the highest rate of suicide of any subset of people on the face of the earth. It's almost like God made you the way he wanted you to be. But it's this idea, it masquerades behind compassion. We want to have compassion on them. And when um, Bishop Nathaniel Wilson, I was telling Pastor in the office a little earlier, I was listening to some teaching of his, and when he tried to conceptualize what is this, this idea that drives light doctrine, he tells this story, he tells this parable, if you will. He says there was a man who had a friend, and his friend just buried his grandfather. It was a tragic day. He had just came back from burying his grandfather, and the man um, said to his friend, he said, I know for a surety, I know for sure that my grandfather was saved. The man said, well, how can you be so sure? You know, how, how do you know that he was saved? He said, well, we were in a bookstore one time, and, and, the, and my grandfather tried to open a Bible, and we quickly shut it. We took it out of his hands, and we put it back on the shelf, said, Grandpa, you can't read that. And he just kind of walked away confused, and he said, we walked down the street, and there was a street preacher, and he was preaching the gospel, and we quickly pushed him away from the street preacher and said, Grandpa, you can't hear that. And a couple weeks later, Grandpa called him up and said, Hey, I want you to take me to church. I want you to take me to church. I can't drive, and I, I need you to take me to church. And they said, No, we, we cannot take you to church. And finally, the old man got so uh, annoyed with it, he said, Why won't you let me read the Bible? Why won't you let me hear preaching? And why won't you let me go to church? And the man said, Well, Grandfather, if you read the Bible, you're going to be accountable for what's in the Bible. And if you go to church, then you're going to have to live the way the preacher told you. But if you are ignorant of it, God can't judge you on your ignorance. But if you can pull up for me Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30, you don't have to go very far into the scripture to find a direct rebuttal of this. This is when Paul is, is preaching in Mars Hill at Athens. He says, the times of this ignorance God winked at. Literal translation is he overlooked it. But now commandeth all men, what men? All men, everywhere to repent. That's pretty all-encompassing. All men, everywhere. What about the people in the third world country who, who maybe haven't had an apostolic guy in a suit and tie? All men, everywhere to repent. I, I taught a, a lesson in our, in our Bible class several, several months ago. And we were looking at Jonah um, going to Nineveh. And, and we walked through the whole story of how Jonah... He runs away, and he comes, he finally he preaches the word. And Nineveh, the city of Nineveh turns, they repent, and God does not 
punish the city like he had supposedly promised to punish the city. And I think I even had a cheeky little slide up here. And I asked the question, I said, what is the, the most compelling proof of the mercy and compassion of God? I said, is it A, that he didn't destroy them? Or is it B, that he sent a preacher? If you want to know the highest order of compassion that you can have on somebody, it is sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that was a really roundabout answer to get back to your question of why send the missionary? Well, Light Doctrine says we shouldn't send because of compassion, but I think we have scriptural precedent that we should sin, that we should preach, that we should spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the sending of the preacher for how can they hear without a preacher? How can they believe if they have not heard? That's so good. So the, the idea to me is when people start feeling compelled and they're like, well, what about so-and-so in the former Soviet Union? What if they've never heard? That's how missionaries get called. They feel that compassion in their heart, and they're like, but who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? And the Spirit of God says, you're going to tell them. And so they sell everything, and they pack up their bags, and they move their family to a foreign country, and they preach the gospel. That's how this works. The spirit of the age is what compels doctrines like this. Now, I'm going to use some language right here that is used frequently in, in political language but it's the spirit of the age, and I'm going to show you why. It's, cre- it's crept into the church, and we use, we, we don't use, political figures use this, pro-choice. Okay? Now, I'm not here to debate anything, but I'm going to tell you, pro-choice people are not really pro-choice. They're anti-consequence. They've already made a choice. You understand what I'm saying? It's not a, a pro-choice that you get to take a baby's life. Your choice was that you made a baby. Now, the consequence is the baby. So, you can't be pro-choice in salvation. What people really are with pro-choice salvation is their anti-consequence. If I can believe what I want to believe and ignore and act like the truth isn't there, then hell is not my consequence. But it is. And that's not apostolic rhetoric. John chapter 3 and verse number 5, and I'm going to let Bishop speak on this in just a moment. This was not, now even if it was, it's still, I still believe it's the word of God, but it's not Paul that said it. It's not Peter that said this. We're reading John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus is speaking about the church that's coming. And he said to Nicodemus, the first line right there, everybody see it? Who answered? Jesus said this. Jesus said, I say unto thee, except a man be born again of water and spirit, he cannot enter. Everybody say enter. Okay. Then we go into verse 6. And he says, that which is born of the spirit of spirit, that's which is born of the flesh is flesh. And he, he tells Nicodemus, he said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And then he says kind of the same thing, but a little bit different, okay? He said, that except a man is born again of water and spirit, 
then he cannot see. Why do we use the language of enter and see? This right here, if we had nothing else, this right here negates the full power of 3D doctrine, third destination, and light doctrine. Because if you have a third destination, they're seated right outside the gate, so to speak, where the bride's sitting at the table, but they're right outside. And so Jesus didn't just say you can't enter. He said you can't see. So I don't care if you consider yourself righteous or not. There's not even a seat close enough for you to see what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are born again. Well, I I was born this. I was born into this lifestyle. I was born with these kind of preconceived ideas and I leaned in that direction and and I I was born like that. I was born a homosexual. I was born a transgender. I was born a woman trapped in a man's body. I was born, 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 born. And they, they write it out. This is what I was born to be. Listen, you must be born again. There are babies that are born addicted to drugs because their parents said they were pro-choice. And they took drugs while the baby was in the womb. But you can't be pro-choice and anti-consequence. Now your baby's born drug addicted. That baby is going to deal with things for the rest of its life. But whether that drug addicted mom and dad are saved or not, that baby's still got to be saved. Whether their grandparents are saved or not, they got to be saved. And you've got to make the decision of whether or not you're going to obey your flesh or you're going to obey what Jesus said. If Paul would have said it, it still would have been good. If Peter would have said it, and they did say the same thing. But if, if Peter would have said it, it still would have been good. But Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and spirit. You must be born again of water and spirit. I'm going to digress a little bit, go back to where Brother Jordan was a while ago. Put up uh, 17 and 31, Wes. And uh, this kind of ties brother, what Brother Gill said with Brother Fries. He said, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom... He hath ordained. Now, this is, this is it right here. Pastor's point about pro-choice. Whereof he hath given assurance unto just the ones that he picks. Unto all men. And that he hath raised him from the dead. So... God's plan did not include a plan B. He robed himself in flesh. God robed himself in flesh. And by the death of one man, all sin was taken care of. Now the issue is, if you choose to take that offer, Because the offer is on the table to all men. Now look, we got to, listen, we we just have to use our, our brain here. And understand, 
I want you to just think about this for just a moment. Do you think that God would intentionally design a plan that would leave somebody out? And that God would not afford every man the opportunity to be saved. You can say what you want to about, well, they're out there in the middle of the jungle and they've never had an opportunity to hear. I believe with all of my heart, with everything that's available today to mankind, that there's not, there's not a man on this earth that hasn't heard some truth that would inspire them to search further to find what it takes to be saved. And I believe with all of my heart that there, there are those men that will be held responsible because they've taken the high road. And tried some way to make the gospel convenient. The gospel was never designed for convenience sake. It was designed with sacrifice in mind. And it was designed with, I don't do it my way. I do it God's way. And so, you know, I wasn't afforded the privilege to be born into Pentecost. I came up through another vein. I always went to church as a kid growing up. But I want you to understand that God would never, if we believe God, God to be who He is, the compassionate God that He is, that He loves the whole world, that He cares enough so much that to the intent that he sees a sparrow when it falls and he knows the very amount of hair on your head. If God is that particular, we cannot in any way justify the idea that somehow God has a different plan for those that haven't heard his word. He set a plan in place and he said... That we all got to come the same way. And it, it's not going to. It doesn't. Look. I, I've got family just like everybody in this building has family. That weren't Pentecostals. But I, there's nothing I can do about that. But this is the thing that you got to know as a child of God. Is that if you have that knowledge. If you have that understanding of truth. And you've been exposed to that. It doesn't matter what happened 50 years ago or yesterday. You are responsible for what you know to follow that teaching and preaching of the word of God. And follow that truth and live it. And not only are you responsible to do that, but you're responsible to share that. He, he didn't spend three and a half years with... Twelve disciples, one of them Baal, we know all of that. He didn't spend all of that time just to ascend back to heaven and say, Okay, guys, just whatever happens from here, it's all good. He left them with a plan, and you and I have it, and he said for us to take it and share it with the whole world. 
Brother Stephen, uh, I want you to answer a question for us, and we're going to wind up here fairly quick. I know you guys are sitting. I'm not up here screaming tonight, so you're not up and down clapping as much. But one of the one of the uh, premise behind this doctrine is that what if there's people that never hear? So I would like for you to answer the question. Our scriptural reference is out of the book of Acts chapter 10. Who witnessed to... Uh, in, in Acts the 10th chapter, when uh, my brain just went completely Cornelius. blank, Cornelius, yeah. I started calling Nicodemus. Who witnessed to Cornelius? Yeah, so he set me up a little bit there because the answer is nobody. Um, you know, when you read, it's, it's really, I'm glad he went there because that's where my mind was when Bishop was talking. It's really arrogant for us to assume that we can determine from looking at a small portion of somebody's life what God, what, what opportunities God has and has not afforded them. Uh, I told pastor a story in the office uh, before we got started, and I don't remember the name of the individual, um, but the story was shared with me, and it was just so powerful about, there was a Muslim man that, I, that he lived in, I, I believe it was Saudi Arabia, and uh, he had been seeking after God. He was becoming a little bit estranged from Islam, and he wandered into a, a Muslim bookstore, and there, sitting on the shelf, was a copy of The Oneness of God by David K. Bernard. And he opened the book and read it. And the story, as it was told to me, is that he began to pray and seek God and uh, trying to find the right answer. What am I supposed to believe? And in, it, the story is that an angel visited him and told him he needed to be baptized in Jesus' name. He needed to receive the Holy Ghost. And from that, um, revivals broke out in some of the surrounding Near Eastern countries, Iraq, Etc. My point in sharing that is it's not really that different from Cornelius. The Bible says he was a man that feared God. And he was a, a Gentile man, so we know we're not talking about somebody that kept the law of Moses. This was just a man that wanted the heart of God. And as he began to seek God, God drew near to him. And God sent him a preacher because of the condition of his own heart. And so if, if we're not careful, we can get tripped up into this idea of thinking that we can determine the end point of somebody's, uh, you know, I, I know that they never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. That's, that's dangerous. And it's, it, as I said, it's very arrogant. And the other side of that is we've really got to decide in our hearts as apostolic Pentecostals, what do we really believe about the new birth? And we, we wonder why is it so important that, you know, if Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again, what does it mean to be born again? Are we talking about confession and belief? If, if it's confession and belief, then why in Acts chapter 8 are the disciples in Samaria that have already been baptized in Jesus' name, why does the Bible tell us that the council in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to them because they hadn't received the Holy Ghost yet? It says that, and they went to go pray for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, and then eventually they did. Why in Acts 19 does Paul ask the question, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Do you need the Spirit or not? And does it happen at confession and belief or not? None of this would have been important to the disciples if it was simply just walk in the light that you know and be a good person. Ironically, the same denominations and the same organizations that support this doctrine are the ones that will proudly beat their chest that we don't believe in salvation by works and no good works can save you. Well, that's all that you're teaching when you tell somebody light doctrine is that good works is sufficient. We don't believe good works is sufficient. 
Now, we believe that we've got to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And the only way that that happens is to, be, is to repent of your sins, to be buried in his name, and to be raised to new life through the Holy Ghost. And so that's what happens in the life of Cornelius is that when the gospel comes to him, it doesn't come in part. It doesn't come, you know, half, you know, half shaded in, in other man's beliefs. God sent him a preacher, and he had the opportunity in that moment to decide if he's going to listen and obey or if he's going to cast it off. And what happens? The Bible says, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard. And then immediately after, Paul, Peter does not say, well, okay, you've received the Holy Ghost. That's, that's good enough. You get the picture. What does it say? It says, in straightway he commanded. He said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized as well as we? And straightway he commanded them to be baptized. So what we believe about the new birth is intricately connected to whether or not we're going to be susceptible to light doctrine or not. You either believe that you have to come in the Bible way, or you believe that you can make up your own mind. And so uh, this, this, uh, this light doctrine, as, it, as it's crept into Pentecost, I told Brother Jordan before we got started tonight, I'm kind of amazed, you know, it, this isn't a doctrine to me that is, is necessarily difficult to, to address or to oppose. It seems fairly obvious, and yet it's so appealing to so many people because they like the idea that yeah, it takes the responsibility off of us. It takes the own. We, we, uh, we were talking about this in the office before, uh, before we got started. The, the question was asked, okay, so, so what happens if they don't hear the gospel? Then they're lost. That's why the New Testament says if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Why do you think that he said go into all the world and preach the gospel? It wasn't an added benefit. It was essential. And so you might say, well, what if I don't share the gospel? Well, then I would say that you're in danger of damnation too. That's the weight of glory. That, that's the weight of the kingdom of God right there is that are you sharing it or not? Are you living it out loud or not? Are you being a light to somebody or aren't you? And so uh, with that. Let's just thank the Lord for truth tonight. Come on, let's just let's thank the Lord for truth tonight. If you're thankful for this glorious gospel message, I just want you to give God praise tonight. Come on, this is not about a denomination. This is not about the name that's on our sign. This is about the name that's on our soul tonight. It's the precious name of Jesus. If you've been water baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, you are blessed tonight. Come on, let's thank the Lord for this glorious truth. Let's thank God for this one God message. This ought to be one of the greatest worship sessions we've had in a long time right here. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious truth.